USA, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, we talk a lot about uh, billable hours on this show. Right. The idea of like, you know, how much a lawyer makes per hour. It's a thing lawyers think a whole lot about. They have to. They track their life in six-minute increments. Yeah. What if I told you that, that you know, maybe a rate that, that's go- that people are going for these days, $61,000 an hour? Not bad. What is that? Not bad that work be, if you can get it. That'd be pretty pretty good, right? I would think that's, so. That's the rate that, that Manny Machado, a big, strong baseball man who signed a contract yesterday, yeah. is, is being paid. He's being paid $300 million over 10 years. I love that you threw in big, strong baseball man because that helped orient me into this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a lad who can, can swing a stick real it's hard. true, yeah. Um, but yeah, he's the uh, one of the... I saw this, this stat that... So, $30 million a year over 10 years. Yeah. So you figure a baseball game is around three hours. Yeah. That works out to $61,000 per hour well, over not the course quite of the contract. Fair. He still has to do a lot of practice and, you're right. and, and training and you're all right. that. But he never has to go into court. It's true. Um, he never has to. He yeah. never has to do anything involving associates, I don't think. Um, yeah, I mean, so, we don't we don't know what kind of other stuff he's got going on. But right. yeah, uh, I, I couldn't help but notice your calculation didn't take into account postseason games that's and it, true and it might be a while before the Padres have to account for that anyway I was we gonna don't say know. that was a dig at the at the San Diego Padres it was yeah now, now we're just hoping that my beloved Phillies sign sign Bryce Harper and, I think any, Bryce, any, Bryce any Harper friend, friend of the show he might be listening so that's right yeah he's out there it's your deep hope that he's friend of the show exactly yeah um well, uh, let's get to more substantive issues yeah I think that's a good idea well or, I mean well we we, we do want to make sure tell people uh we got an interesting interview later in right. the show before we, we hit the news. We do, and this is taking us away from sports and toward movies, so right. back toward my wheelhouse. Back toward Amber territory. Yeah, we're going to talk with Kalpana Kotagal. She's an attorney who helped um, originate the idea of inclusion writers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, this came up at last year's Oscars, and it's a way to try to get more diversity in Hollywood, so we're going to chat with her about how that's gone over the past year. And what might be announced at this this weekend's Oscars. So Yeah, we'll you see. never know what Frances McDormand yeah. might drop into a speech, <laughs> so we'll talk about that. Yeah, she, well, she's presenting Best actor, right. so I hope you also yeah. you also never know what Justice Clarence Thomas is going to drop into a concurrence. That's true, guys. That was a good transition. It right? really not was. bad, yeah, yeah, yeah. not bad. Um, but okay, so we had some wacky Clarence Thomas news this week. Um, he's not really a guy who's really into the idea of precedent. Um, that's sort of like a well-known thing about yeah. him. That mm-hmm. like stare decisis, the idea that you're supposed to respect previous opinions, is like sort of comes second to his idea of like originalism and and that, that you should really look at what the Constitution says and if. Some case law gets in the way that the Constitution trumps that. The sort of purest form of... Exactly. Yeah. But but even in that context, even with that said, what we saw this week was pretty sort of uh, jarring to see. Mm-hmm. He he dropped in, a, in an otherwise sort of unremarkable um, denial of certiorari. He dropped a concurrence in which he suggested somewhat forcefully that the 1964 landmark in New York Times versus Sullivan should be um, overturned by the Supreme Court, which pretty wild to yeah. thing to suggest. Well, let, let's dig in some more to that. Um, I think most people probably just recognize on name alone that case. Yeah. But tell us more about what Thomas wants to potentially overturn. Yeah. So it came on Tuesday. It was a case filed against Bill Cosby um, by one of his accusers. Um, basically, this is a woman who accused Cosby of rape and um According to her lawsuit, she says that his lawyers leaked this information that challenged her credibility and that defamed her. Um, 
The case was tossed out by a lower court largely because of New York Times versus Sullivan, which mm-hmm. we just mentioned. Um, it's this landmark 1964 ruling that said public officials, and then later cases sort of expanded that to important people, public figures, yeah. Yeah. Um, can only file lawsuits, libel lawsuits, when the someone has acted with what's called actual malice, which is... Um, it means that the writer knew that what they were saying was false. That yeah. They didn't just say something that was false. They knew that they were doing it or they were acting with this reckless disregard for the truth. They didn't yep. fa- check check any facts, anything like that. Mm-hmm. So as you probably gleaned, that's a very, very difficult thing to yeah. prove. To prove that Amber right. said something about me and meant it to be, you know, that, that it was intentionally false. Yeah. Um, but it's also a super important ruling. I mean, a lot of our entire business as journalists is built on the knowledge that you can report on these public figures, even when it's an incendiary um, allegation, perhaps. One million percent. It gives breathing space to sort of a good faith approach to to journalism that you are you are trying your very best yeah. to be right all the time but the few times you are wrong you aren't sued into oblivion yeah. and destroyed right. by S- simply making a mistake about something is not the same as conducting actual malice and like that's what saying. people say that the the legacy of of new york times versus sullivan was that it's you know and and it it is arguably the most important first amendment sure. case ever ever written yeah. um and that that without it you know that the watergate reporting wouldn't have happened that all sorts of the the sort uh-huh. of robust media we've seen since then mm-hmm. would not have happened without this level of of protection that the Supreme Court created in this this ruling. Okay. So what actually happened then um, on on Tuesday? Yeah, so like I said that this was a case um this case against Cosby was tossed because the woman who filed it the lower court ruled that she was a quote public figure that must satisfy this actual malice standard must mm-hmm. prove that Cosby and his attorneys did this, you know, knowing that it was false, this this very difficult thing to prove. She, like many people before her, failed to prove that, and the case was dismissed. Mm-hmm. She appealed that ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court, and on Tuesday, they refused to hear her case. Um, Clarence Thomas agreed with that, but he wrote this concurrence saying, yes, this is a fact-bound question. Whether or not this woman who who is suing Bill Cosby is a public figure is not the kind of question that should be going to the Supreme Court. It's not yeah. the big sweeping question. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but maybe we should rethink some of the underlying case law here, namely New York Times versus Sullivan. Now, we just laid out why it's been so important for the First Amendment and the sort of freedom of press in the country yeah. sort of sounds, you know, it, it there, there's there been a lot of good that came out of this law. Why is Thomas so, you know, like eager to revisit it and possibly get rid of it? As we mentioned, he's a pretty strict originalist and he, you know, it's pretty simple to him that, 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 that the First Amendment did not, con- like, it did not contemplate this kind of restriction on libel lawsuits when it was written. He says that he does this he, in the concurrence that came out this week, he did this big, long historical analysis saying, look, when the First Amendment came out, libel law was was really strong and it had no carve out. And if anything, it was easier to sue public people, blah, 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 blah. So he just says, look, the, I understand that this was that, that this was a, what, what the court said in 1964, but in 1791, 
there was no idea that this was how things Mm -hmm. were written. And if that's the way that you believe that the Constitution should be interpreted, it's obviously up for debate amongst people, but um, it's a pretty simple question. And so he said, instead of this really important thing that we were just discussing, he said Sullivan and its progeny were, quote, policy-driven decisions masquerading as constitutional law that the court ought not to, quote, reflexively apply in future cases. Okay, I am so freaked out at this conversation <laughs> at this point. Uh, yeah. I can't be the only one that had strong reactions to this. Yeah, I think um, uh, metaphorical alarm bells um, went off yeah. when this when this opinion came out. Um, I mean, for First Amendment experts, all the stuff that we already talked about already applies. That this is just literally the basis for decades of really, really important First mm-hmm. Amendment law. It's foundational. It's it, it, um, So I talked to um, Floyd Abrams, who is this really um, sort of legendary First Amendment attorney. He worked on the Pentagon Papers case. Yeah. He's had yeah. this very distinguished career. Um, he responded to me by saying that um, Sullivan's not just, quote, not just a legal landmark, but, quote, an articulator of and defender of American democracy. So mm-hmm. it's, for First Amendment lawyers, this is like the shot across the bow of all shots across the bow. That, yeah. that you know, you're coming after our our the the originator yeah, the key thing the foundational ruling yeah um and then for people on the political left which is probably why it got even more press this week was that it really sort of you know dovetails with some of the stuff that Trump has said that you know President Trump on the campaign trail said we want to quote open up the libel yeah. laws right. to make it easier to sue the press he obviously believes that he has been maligned by the press at many times both before and after he was elected president um and. You know, so it, if 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 he believes that, and that that was sort of laughed off at the time because right. people were like, "Hmm, New York Times versus Sullivan." Yeah, like, <laughs> sure. So you know, Thomas a, Thomas like breathes like more legitimacy into the like open up the libel laws school of thought well, exactly and, and, by writing about it. And also, it's the thing that we talk about a lot on the show where justices will give these signals, and it will yeah r- give rise to a whole bunch of other suits that uh-huh. could yes. eventually get to them to overturn things. Yeah, and it's also just from our perspective as people in the media, there have been a string of very high-profile libel lawsuits, mm-hmm. most notably the case that that brought down Gawker. It essentially yeah. bankrupted the company. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a new case filed the very same day that this opinion came out against the against the Washington Post over the coverage of um, the MAGA hat kids, the the Covington Catholic kids. Yeah, yeah. the one um, that mm-hmm. got in the altercation with the Native American man. Yeah, and there was all sorts of stuff leading up to the lawsuit about how they had been keeping keeping names and that they were going to come after anyone. And that and, you know, and that that. It really does. It really does chill coverage. Whether or not, whether or not they were one hundred percent right, the idea that you would be sued into into dirt, yeah, because you reported on something is something that people in the media really shudder at. Uh, yeah, Bill, are we doomed here? So, <laughs> the good news is that all those same. I talked to a bunch of other people other than Floyd Abrams, um, and he and everyone else very clearly said, "Look." This is this is right now. If this is Thomas being Thomas, that he is known for writing sort of off outside the box uh, concurrences and sure. dissents. That I mean, for instance, uh, I think it was today or yesterday he wrote a thing where he compared Roe v. Wade to the Dred Scott opinion. Yeah, in a in a in a ruling. So yeah. he's known as a guy who will th- sort of uh, you know lob bombs with when it comes to the writing so and then there's also the fact that he was the only person who joined this so if you had someone else you know on either the right or the left if you had somebody who 
shared similar sympathies, there's not really any disincentive to joining Thomas sure. if, if you believe in this stuff. Or even writing your own concurrence that says, look, there's a more nuanced take to reassessing Sullivan. Yeah. No one did any No of one that. did. So, yeah, not even close. Which would everyone I spoke to said would sort of indicate that uh, 50 years of settled law will probably stay 50 years of settled law. We've got some more news from the high court this week um, that also kind of cuts to sort of a bedrock principle of American democracy, much like much like Bill's story. Um, listeners might remember our very recent discussion of Tyson Timms. This was the Indiana man who had his Land Rover seized by the state government after he got busted for selling heroin. Um, he challenged the seizure of that vehicle uh, at the Supreme Court, and he got a unanimous victory on Wednesday um, when the justices said... Um, that states cannot impose excessive fines uh, to people who have been charged with crimes. Yeah, I remember talking about this one because one of the justices asked if your Bucati could be That's right. seized, yeah. right? Yeah, Breyer, I think. Or, uh, I don't remember, but yeah, the fact that that was the chosen car I know. was just yeah, so Breyer, Breyer was talking about igloos yesterday, so I oh, feel nice. like the, uh, <laughs> the, the bizarre sports car reference was probably him. That's good. Um, and yes, everyone should go back and listen to that episode. That's episode 82. We talked about it with... Diana Novak-Jones, um, and we go through the whole case. But basically, Tim's was arrested in 2015, and he eventually pled guilty to selling um, about 400 bucks worth of heroin uh, out of his car. He was sentenced to one year of home detention, and he paid about $1,200 in fines. But because he was selling the drugs in his car, it was a $42,000 Land Rover, um, the state of Indiana uh, moved to seize it. And and to be clear, he didn't buy the car with any drug proceeds or anything like that. No, I mean, it was just he he had purchased it with, um, I think, some money that he had inherited from his dad from, right. a, from a, life, uh, a life insurance policy. And so it was just kind of it was, you know, used in the you know performance of the crime. So the state looked to seize it. And, um, you know, he began a legal case uh, that ended up at the high court against Indiana's use of. Um, of civil asset forfeiture. And what was roughly the argument? Uh, the, the, the argument is basically that the Eighth Amendment um, to the Constitution does contain like a clear ban on excessive fines. It's mm -hmm. right there in the amendment. But that's a federal amendment, of course. Um, and the question here was whether or not that ban on excessive fines also applies uh, to the state at the state level. Um, and this fits into states have been using civil asset forfeiture more and more. And in case you forgot, the general thing there is like, you know, if you're charged with a crime, um, in addition to the criminal sort of proceeding that you are facing, the government can also and often does seize your assets like your car in this case, your house, a, a large sums of money. And yeah. then when you're done with whatever, whatever, whenever the criminal, you know, sort of case runs its course, you then pr like are on this whole other track of civil litigation to get your property back. And it's very costly and very arduous. And it's like a whole thing. It's one um, of those things where when you explain it to someone who hasn't been following in long, yeah. they're, like, they're like, the government can do what? Yeah. yeah it like seems it's, crazy. It, it feels like an easy, an easy sell to be like, maybe we shouldn't do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Um, so, I mean, it's a huge pain in the butt. And, um, and in, it, it, more than being just a pain, I mean, it can sort of, you know, remove people from like people who are like sort of hanging, you know, by the fringe. Maybe they're, they're like pay, pay to, paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And they're, you know, it can it can really disrupt your entire life. But so we got to the Supreme Court and mm -hmm. we got a ruling this week. Yeah, um, it went pretty well for him. Um, like I say, the, the, the central question is whether or not the Eighth Amendment's ban on excessive fines extends to the states. That's the question they're examining. Um, and during during arguments in December, we talked about this with Diana, Neil Gorsuch kind of gave the game away. He interrupted the Indiana government's opening statement 
and said, quote, we all agree the excessive fines clause is incorporated <laughs> against the states. <laughs> like, that's the question. And he was Neil. just kind of, yeah, right. Uh, so Wild Neil. The writing was a little bit on the wall, and uh, he was right. They all agree. Uh, it was a 9-0 decision. It was penned by Ruth Bader Ginsburg that said, um, yeah, the states are bound by this excessive fine ban. And she, it's an interesting opinion. She sort of talks about... Um, the reason that the government can't just like impose whatever penalty it wants against whatever infraction it encounters because yeah. it's, you know, sort of intrinsic to the fabric of democracy. She wrote <laughs> uh, she wrote this for good reason. The protection against excessive fines has been a constant shield throughout Anglo-American history. Exorbitant tolls undermine other constitutional liberties. So mm. she's saying this is a bedrock right that we enjoy under the Constitution. So Tim's is happy here. He won. And I bet advocates are really pleased with this ruling because it it sort of mm -hmm. would curtail this activity. But will it really do that? Will it cut off this civil asset forfeiture? Yeah. Though the ruling is a narrow one, and that's because the question was a narrow one. He didn't ask for things and not get them. The question was only about whether or not states are banned from handing out excessive fines. Um, the court didn't even say to Tim's, uh, the seizure of your Land Rover was excessive. Mm -hmm. It just says you can argue that it was excessive. That gotcha. was in doubt before. So it creates this avenue for you to challenge what you consider to be an excessive uh, seizure by the state. But like states can keep doing this and then each individual person will right. have to challenge what they're up to. Yeah, there are questions sort of swirling about what um, what what is the definition of an excessive fine mm -hmm. by a state? What steps does a state have to take to make sure it's not being excessive when it doles out these punishments? Those are questions for another day, but the Tim's case basically opens the door for litigants to ask those questions. acceptance speech at last year's Oscars, actress Frances McDormand dropped some legalese few people have heard of, inclusion rider. In the years since, these contract provisions aimed at increasing diversity among the cast and crews of movies have picked up steam. And to talk about them, we're joined by Kalpana Kodagal, a partner at Cohen Milstein, who is integral in creating inclusion riders. Welcome to the show, Kalpana. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. So a, a year ago, it sort of immediately hit the public consciousness when these were mentioned at the Oscars. But for anybody who wasn't watching that broadcast and maybe missed out, can you tell us what exactly is an inclusion rider and why is it important? Absolutely. The inclusion rider that Frances McDormand raised into the public consciousness at the Oscars a year ago was created by Stacey Smith, who um, heads the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative at USC, Fanchon Cox DiGiovanni of Pearl Street Films, and myself. And so it is a contractual document, contractual language, that an A-lister, whether a star or a director or a producer, can take into negotiation studios to raise issues of representation on screen and behind the camera and work to make improving those issues part of the work of that production. So we created this template legal language that Frances McDormand came to hear about um, shortly before the Oscars and then, to all of our surprise, um, talked about from the Oscar stage um, and obviously 
completely changed our lives and, and I think um, has made a tremendous impact on um, on the broader movement for deepening diversity in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, was that was that a, a shocking moment when you did, did you know that it was coming that that, that the no. yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, we had no idea. And honestly, I was asleep. Right. It was like 1130 <laughs> on a Sunday night. I have little kids. I knew I had a crazy week ahead anyway and had to be up early the next morning with the kids. And so I watched some of the Oscars, but then I went to sleep <laughs> and um, woke up the next morning. Stacy, thankfully, was watching the Oscars and was paying attention when this happened and was able to jump on it and, and make sure that people knew what we were talking about yeah. here. But I, I didn't find out till early the next morning when I woke and my phone, as you can imagine, had just like blown up overnight. Um, and so, you know, Stacey and Fanchon and I then spent the next several weeks, several months, really um, talking about um, about what this is and how it would work and um, gratified by the huge uptick in, um, in public commitment um, to use these principles um, in, in hiring in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, we saw immediately after, after that, it obviously, it, it, you know, it trended, it was a Google trending term, but um, but since then we've seen big stars begin begin to use inclusion writers, and and then the attendant press that keeps this you know that, that keeps this issue in the news, right? Like Michael B. Jordan is has it was one of the first ones. Could you sort of walk that's, us through that? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So shortly after the Oscars, I think within a week of the Oscars, Michael B. Jordan and his team at Outlier Society Productions, you know, huge credit goes to Alana Mayo, who heads production there. They announced their commitment to use the inclusion rider for Outlier Society Productions. Mm -hmm. That then led a couple of months later to negotiations with Warner Media, where, um, where Michael signed a first look film agreement and was in, in pre-production for Just Mercy, um, led to the use of the inclusion rider on Just Mercy, and then prompted Warner to develop its own company-wide diversity and inclusion policy. And then actually just a week or two ago, Alana and Michael announced a first-look agreement with Amazon Studios for TV mm -hmm. that also includes inclusion riders. Um, the other, I think, sort of high-profile example of, of actual adoption just in, in this first 12 months um, is a film that premiered at Sundance called Hala, about a Muslim-American girl. Um, it came out of Endeavor Content, which was one of the first organizations to commit to using an inclusion writer after the Oscars as well. Um, and that film, I think Jada Pinkett Smith is executive producer of that, and Minal Baig is the, is the director. It was just picked up coming out of Sundance for distribution. Um, so, so yes, we are in fact seeing examples of implementation and adoption of um, of inclusion writers. Yeah, and, let's, um, let's yeah, maybe dig ahead. in a bit more into why these inclusion writers are different from other ways to address diversity problems in Hollywood. Um, yeah. I know you've mentioned that uh, in explaining these, that these are contractual, and then you're talking about people like Jada Pinkett Smith and, and Michael B. Jordan, big name people who get to be the ones that are the drivers of this change. Can you explain a bit more about why that's important? Absolutely. You know, I think it's quite clear if we look, for example, at Stacey's research over the last decade, that very little has worked to move the needle on representation, both on screen and behind the camera in Hollywood. It's been stagnant. And so we were looking for a different way to approach that problem and thought about 
the role that those with influence in the industry have mm-hmm. to be drivers of that change, right? And that is the that is what makes the inclusion rider, I think, such an interesting yeah. strategy is that it relies on those who already have influence in the industry to use that influence to advance change. But now you, um, you and, me- well, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, well, so, you- so that's, I mean, that's where the Michael B. Jordans and the Jada Pinkett Smiths and the Matt Damons and Ben Affleck's come in. Right. So you mentioned in um, you have a really great piece that's going to be in Law 360 uh, today um, about all this. And you mentioned in that the idea that, you know, that there isn't a hard quota here, that it isn't this system of we want this many, you know, X, Y or Z, that it's it's a much more flexible approach. Could you walk us through like the mechanics of how it of how that works, you know, that how you maintain that that sort of artistic flexibility while also moving toward these goals? Yeah, because I think people get really scared when they worry about quotas. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, there we, we know, everybody knows that quotas are not permitted in our legal system here in the United States. But there are lots of opportunities to use targets and benchmarks where you are looking for opportunities to identify and actually hire highly qualified folks from underrepresented backgrounds mm-hmm. for those positions. I think one of the really important parts of the puzzle here, which, which goes to this point, is that for the vast majority of behind-the-camera roles and for all on-screen roles, there is a deep bench of highly qualified folks from underrepresented backgrounds who are waiting for the opportunity to get work. And so what the inclusion rider does is to slow down that hiring process to require a deeper and more diverse bench of candidates coming in to audition and then to ask those who are making the casting and hiring decisions to use their very best efforts to seek out highly qualified folks from those underrepresented backgrounds. And right? That's what, that's what makes it different than um, – than a quota. It's not rigid. These are flexible. Um, we are asking people to slow down the process for hiring and for casting to think about implicit bias and figure out how we can identify folks who are highly qualified for these jobs who are looking for these opportunities. Right. And, and there are a lot of people out there. And you, and you mentioned you mentioned the data a little bit earlier, but I think it's important just to underscore for for the listeners that, you know, the the sort of scale of the problem that, you know, just just 31 percent of of speaking characters in in movies over the past decade were were women. About 29 percent of character of speaking characters were 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 non-white. So there really is these this sort of uh, stubbornness to the numbers um, that that these kind of things are trying to address. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, I think if you look at that. So Stacey Smith, obviously co-author of The Inclusion Rider, um, has done tremendous work in this space, as has Darnell Hunt, who's at UCLA, and, and Martha Lausen, who's at SD State, San Diego State. The three of them have really painted a very comprehensive picture of, of how far Hollywood has to go, both on screen and behind the camera. Yeah, there's 4.2% four, I, I saw for directors, which is just astonishing. Yeah, of, yeah there, so there, let's there talk were about women. that for yeah. a second, because I think it's really important. Um, the, the inclusion rider is a specific strategy with a specific objective that focuses on the smaller speaking roles on screen, which is to say a pipeline, and also behind the camera um, crew roles below the line. Mm-hmm. It is not intended to get at some of the 
um, of the problems that are bound up with, say, story sovereignty or the ability to get a film made, namely, who are the leading actors, who are the directors of that film. Right. I think it's really important to situate the inclusion writer in the broader movement for change in Hollywood, and there are a whole lot of problems, directors, what stories get told, et cetera, are among them. And the inclusion writer, you know, doesn't address those problems. We need other strategies to get at those issues. So that actually is a, the perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about um, with you, which it's exciting to hear from you that there has been this progress with inclusion writers, that we have some big steps forward with people implementing these. But what else can Hollywood do? I mean, we, we do have a deep problem here. What are the things that you want to have us talk about this time next year that Hollywood has potentially implemented or pushed forward with. Yeah, what can Frances McDormand uh, uh, bring up at this year's Oscar? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's terrific. So, I mean, I think it's really important to keep in mind that there is a, a deep movement for change in Hollywood. And so let me just give you a couple of examples of, I think, the work to be done. One is that my hope is that we start to see in these annual reports analyzing on-screen and behind-the-camera crew representation that the numbers do, in fact, start to tick up, right, as a result of the inclusion rider and other related strategies. The second is that we need to start seeing attention being paid to bias in the hiring of folks like directors who are, you know, integral to the film being made. And, and as you just said, you know, the number of women who get hired to direct big feature films is abysmally low, right? And that's true for people of color and other underrepresented folks as well. So, so that's an additional problem. The third thing I would point to is, and I think you may know that this is happening, my colleague Anita Hill chairs a commission on sexual harassment in the industry coming out of the, of the Weinstein mess 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think we have to keep in mind the connection between all of these different pieces of the puzzle. Hiring and diversity and representation in all of these jobs is related to creating and changing a workplace culture um, that, that genuinely values and respects uh, people from all backgrounds and walks of life. And so the industry has to continue to get a handle on other dimensions of that problem, including sexual harassment. I think that's all the time we have for today, but if anybody's interested in what we've talked about, I would really encourage them to go to Law360 and read your article that we're publishing today. Um, Thanks so much for being on the show with us. This was terrific. Thanks for inviting me. Dinner show is something offbeat, and Bill, you're going to tell us about something today. Yeah, I'm going to talk about like uh, judges being people. You know, you know, I love those stories. They're just like us. Well, it's funny that you say just like us because it's pretty common that you see like on you see like journalists or like people on Twitter will sometimes accidentally publish things early. They'll, sure, you know, you'll put something up that has like a like a placeholder in it where it's like this is where something will go right and or like, like an like, editor's well, note or a dumb flub and you take it down immediately people know but well, whatever well i remember when i worked at a, at a newspaper there was there there was a there was a, you know framed copies of like headlines went out with like tk tk etc <laughs> right. et that went out right. in people's driveways right. so yeah um 
You don't see a judge do that very often, yeah. Uh, but it does happen, and it happened last week when we found out that a federal judge had included a parenthetical <laughs> that included the word meh. Oh, I a, love that. Yeah, in a in a court ruling. So, uh, tell us about it. Where did this word meh appear? So, um, it was a case involving uh, U.S. District Judge Gonzalo Curiel, who you'll probably remember is the guy that Trump uh, accused of being like a. He was biased because he was Mexican. There you go. Yeah, Yeah. I was trying to find the delicate way to phrase that. Um, uh, It was a case involving, it's a defamation case and a uh, false advertising lawsuit filed by a supplement company against the company that had been writing critical things about them online. And um, the judge was writing what's called a rule statement in a opinion where it's basically the part of the opinion where you explain uh, the different citation, like different case law that that goes into- That you will be applying in the case. Exactly. and he was explaining that the supplement company <laughs> to file the kind of lawsuit that they wanted, they needed more specific evidence of the false statements that they were claiming had been said about them. After he did that, he included a citation of a ruling from 2013, which he followed up with a parenthetical, quote, meh, I need a better rule statement than this. <laughs> okay. All right. Just that to be clear. Rules. First, I love that. Um do we think that that was a note to himself, or was it a note to like a clerk? Look, Amber, we'll never know. It's a black box. This this federal court system we have here. But it, <laughs> I'm, it I'm saying this mainly because um, I can imagine many scenarios where I would put a note like that in copy I'm reading from a reporter on the team. Curiel's like going to have it. Sure. He's going to have it in his tell-all in 30 years. It's going to be a light <laughs> section on Trump and then a big long <laughs> section right. on, sure, the, explaining that. on Maggate. Well, yeah. it's well, it's true because when when I when I said. Oh, judges, they're just like us. Like, I do stuff like this when I'm writing. It's like, okay, like, I'll make a little note that says, completely, this, but make it good, idiot. Like, <laughs> like, like, don't, like, don't say this, or, but mean this. Well, even worse and even more sort of insidious, sometimes I'll put in, like, I'll write something sort of stream of consciousness. Yeah, oh, sure. Thinking, like, well, that's sort of a bad way to phrase that. I'll come back and fix it. We and need to word like vomit it out. 9 p.m. Yeah. and I forget that I've put that there because it's not listed as like, guys, needs you, to change this. Do you guys want to tell me all the, the things you're doing <laughs> you're, in your you're stories? You're crawling this, inside our brains here and, and inside Judge Curiel's brain. So after it came up, a few different people noticed it and they quickly pulled it and they removed that sentence. Sure. It's interesting. They kept the same site. Oh. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they didn't put a better site in. Yeah. Um, well, when meh. Our, our, right. our reporter, Sam Reisman, uh, reached out to the supplement company, the plaintiff who filed this lawsuit, um, because they were on the losing end of this. This was an order dismissing their lawsuit, but it was dismissing it without prejudice. So, you know, it was sort of a, you need to fix your lawsuit, but refile it. It wasn't a big loss for them. Yeah. Um, they said they were okay with the ruling, uh, th- this attorney from <laughs> Pepper Hamilton. And um, it was a good quote. They, they told Sam that it was, quote, an obviously inadvertent inclusion and, quote, to err is human, to forgive divine. That's amazing. Citation That's, needed. TK, good TK, TK. <laughs> good way. You know, I don't know if I don't know if the uh, the, the the judges are, are are reading us, but you know, if you're a lawyer, you, you got to say you got to think a little bit of upside. You know, I'm I'm, I'm sort of sort of. T- Talking up the judge, saying, you know, yeah. it's, it's NBD. Currying favor. Yeah. Well, that's great. If I ever leave some editing note in one of your stories that gets published, sure. please also suck up to me in this exact same way. <laughs> you have to leave us some editing notes first, but yeah. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> well, I'm going to cut it off there. All Thanks right. for moving to Bell. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks.
We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Kalpana Kotagal, contributing reporters, RJ Vogt and Sam Reisman. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to us everywhere you find podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Thanks and join us again next week.